The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest in business and finance around the world, hosted by me, Rob Cox, the global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. Last week, my colleague Richard Beals and I hosted a live, well, virtual newsmaker with the chief executive of Brookfield Asset Management, Bruce Platt. As you'll hear from our chat, Bruce is perhaps surprisingly optimistic about the prospects for office buildings, shopping malls, and some other assets that have taken a beating from the coronavirus and the large-scale lockdowns imposed around the world. Of course, he ought to be. As a $500 billion investor in alternative assets, Brookfield is one of the world's largest owners of commercial property, like Canary Wharf in London, and retail, including the World Financial Center, now called Brookfield Place, in downtown Manhattan. He's also bullish on renewable energy, on India, and he sees the move to ESG accelerated rather than slowed by COVID-19's economic crunch. So give a listen to my chat with Bruce Flatt. Good morning or good afternoon if you're in Europe and beyond. I'm Rob Cox, the global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. Welcome to this virtual Reuters newsmaker with Bruce Flatt, the chief executive of Brookfield Asset Management, one of the world's leading alternative asset managers. I'll also be joined in today's discussion by Reuters Breaking Views Deputy Editor Richard Beals. Richard will be going through questions that you out there, the audience, send in via the Q&A widget that uh, registered participants should be able to see on their screens. But please do not hesitate to lob in your questions, though I can't promise we'll get to all of them. Richard will fillet some of the best for Bruce at the end of our chat. Uh, this is the third virtual session we have done during the pandemic, and it coincides with a book my colleagues at Breaking Views recently published looking at what will change when the disease and the great lockdown have passed. Please go to breakingviews.com or check on your icon screen to download a PDF of once in a lifetime. I was particularly excited that Bruce agreed to sit down with us given the breadth and depth of investments that Brookfield has in different asset classes and geographies around the world. The Toronto-based group's holdings range from Canary Wharf uh, office complex in London, where we have our offices, to prime Manhattan real estate. Uh, they include Brazilian toll roads, even an entire city outside of Mumbai. And just last year, Brookfield acquired Oak Tree, an investment firm dedicated to buying distressed assets. Not a bad call, if you think about it, given the market meltdown a few months ago. Bruce joins us now from London. Good afternoon, Mr. Flat. How are you? Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. So I guess you're in Canary Wharf. I am, across from your office. Right. Well, I'm in the wilds of Connecticut. I think Richard is in New York, but let's get into it. So I just thought to start... It would be great to get a sense of you where you think we are in terms of the, the economic crisis or market crisis related to the pandemic. Are you, a, are you a believer that we're on the cusp of some great recovery here? Or do you see a false dawn? Are you worried about uh, a, a spike again in cases? Where do you see sort of the world economy at the moment? And what's your yeah, perspective? Look, look Rob, here, here's what I would say. The world is... Um, Everybody looks for um, one thing or the other often. Uh, it's much more nuanced than that. And uh, we're in an environment where, um, and I guess the most positive thing I would say, and, and we try to tell all our people and all our clients, is that this too shall pass. Uh, we always go through these. I've been through um, a number of them myself. And they always do pass. And the one thing that I always think about is that when you're in them, it always seems like it's the worst one. And right. it does for the current moment, but um, they all the other ones were bad too. And uh, I can, you know, 2008 was bad for, for all, especially financial groups. And I'll put real estate, infrastructure, private equity into that. Um, the 9-11 the attacks were uh, for New York-based organizations like ours um, were, were very... Uh, uh, traumatic. So every, it always seems bad at the moment. I would say this, this one will pass. C coming, to the, coming to the current situation, look, we see green shoots around the world and things opening up everywhere, but we must get things open up in the rest of the places or we're going to re retrace in the economic situation. And uh, it's, that, it's that simple. We have to get things open. Um, but we're seeing it happening in many different places, and that's a positive. What I mean, do you think the market, you look at the stock market, we're, you know, the S&P has basically gotten back to uh, where it was at the start of the year. Your stock price is pretty much, you know, flat. I mean, you like everything, it dipped for a while. 
is the market getting it right, or do you think it's over anticipating um, the, a return to something like normal? Look, in the real economy, things are still tough. There's major industries that have zero uh, revenues today. Uh, and in, in, in many, many businesses, the markets are still very tough. So people are either looking to 2021 and forgotten about what the numbers are, or they expect that the Fed is going to be pumping liquidity into the markets um, for a long period of time. Um, we'll find out in due course which one is right. Um, but there's no doubt our view was, and, and we can talk about it if you wish, but our view was stock markets for two years were, were fairly valued. I'll use that term. Yeah. And, and today, while there is a pandemic going on, they're back to the same points of being fairly valued at the end of last year, early this year. So um, that that probably answers your question. Well, that may, I mean, if I'm part, that sounds like you, yeah, we've talked about this before that, you know, you were, and we can go back to your oak tree investment a bit, which is you, you expected some, that we were at, you know, sort of pretty heady valuations. Um, we're back to those valuations, but with a outlook that's less certain, if you will, or, or it's at least with, with more obvious risks. Are you, so you're basically bearish on the market. Here's what I would say. In March, we were buying our securities and we were buying uh, securities in many investments in the stock market in our various funds because we felt that the stock markets on March 15th, March 30th, April 15th during that month and, and a little longer maybe, um, were undervaluing true tangible value. Today, they're not undervaluing tangible value, and some of those securities uh, uh, that we purchased are being sold. So that, uh, I would say, okay. whether they're fairly valued, we'll only know in the future. Um, they're down because more money is being pumped into the system, and it was the right thing that the Fed did to avoid an economic de depression, possibly. And secondly, because interest rates are now zero around the world. They've never, they were always zero in Japan, always. 30 years, they've been zero in Japan. But they're zero everywhere in the world. And what that means for asset classes and values of assets and value of business is unclear. What it probably does mean is that valuation multiples, PE multiples, valuations for real assets, valuation for real estate, are going to be higher in the future once you normalize the environment if you keep rates low. And right. uh, and we think rates will stay low for a while. Now, you and I spoke, I think I was visiting you in February before you know, before everything happened, before the crisis really hit, I should say. And I recall you were wary of a downturn. And one of the one of the ways that you were you, you were um, preparing for that was by buying Oak Tree, which is a specialist in companies in distress, buys, basically buys the debt. Um, and gets to own the companies through bankruptcies and defaults. Do you think that the, I mean, you mentioned the Fed, the amount of money that's been pumped in, not just by the Fed, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank and other central banks has sort of stabbed off this necessary or you know, sort of inevitable part of capitalism where we have defaults, where we have companies that need to restructure their debts. Are you, are you concerned that that sort of natural course has been interrupted in some way? Here's what I'd say. If you step back, our... our um what we have been doing over the last number of years, we were worried that the markets were high. Um, no one ever knows whether they'll end or whether they'll stop, but what you can do to pre is prepare. And, and we put more cash in our balance sheets. We extended out the maturity of our financings. We liquefied things if we could liquefy, and we were ready, which meant you earned less because you were less aggressive. And the last thing we did was we came upon the idea to partner with the team at Oak Tree. And this was our, our last piece of the story, was to have a distressed debt business to be able to, to um, capitalize on, on a situation like today. There's no doubt in March and April, uh, that franchise was buying a lot of securities. Today, they're buying less. But what that doesn't mean is that the equitizations and the amounts of leverage that are sitting in companies aren't going to have to be refinanced. And there will be, we believe, there will be significant opportunity coming three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now. And, and, and possibly we're going to get the best thing for everybody because we avoided the true economic collapse 
yeah. which might have occurred if they didn't do what they were doing. And you'll have a slow equitization of all of these businesses over the next year and a half. And as you do that, we'll have a we'll have a normalization as opposed to a collapse. And that that may be the best thing that um, that can happen. And therefore, the the short answer is, look, the opportunities are coming and we think there'll be lots of opportunity for the for the Oak Tree franchise. I mean, let me put, thinking about the global reach of your group. I'm wondering if you're seeing major differences in the way the pandemic or just the economic impact uh, is playing out and, and whether there are certain countries or regions where you're seeing policy responsive responses that have ensured better outcomes, say, from an economic perspective. Look, I, I think um, the way I'd put it is we're, we're the, not often do you have a situation that occurs where it affects every single country in the world. Yeah. This affected virtually every single country. Normally you have a recession and it hits Asia or it hits North America or it hits the developed markets or it hits South America. What happened here is it hit everywhere. But what we are, it hit at different periods of time. And what I can tell you is our Asian businesses, both the operating businesses we have, therefore the real people that are on the ground running the businesses uh, and our investment businesses are up and running 100% and everyone back in the office and working. And um, so, so th- and that's occurring across the world. Australia opened uh, two weeks ago. Dubai's now open. So we've moved across the world and uh, we're coming to London's now opening soon. The U.S. is opening in various markets. And so I think it's just time and uh, all of the markets are going to experience, and, and it's nuances. Some are doing it a little slower, and some are doing it a little faster. What's right, I don't know. Um, health experts have to decide that. But our only encouragement is we have to get back, and we have to get the economy moving. Let's discuss some of the areas, specific areas, where Brookfield is a big investor. Uh, we can talk about the office. I mean, you, you mentioned it right there that, you know, you have folks coming back. You're there in, at Canary Wharf. Some of us, I'm here in the wilds of Connecticut uh, at, at home. Richard is in New York. We haven't yet opened, returned to our office. But what, I mean, what will happen to this thing, bigger, bigger picture? What's going to happen to the office? Because there's a lot of talk about, oh, well, now that people, you know, can work from home, they don't need to go to the office. There'll be less need for office space. Where, what's your, what's your take on that being, of course, you know, a very large investor in commercial property. Look, here's what I would say. Um, And it's really, this is really simple and it's by observation over a long period of time. Um, Culture of a company is about its people, the spontaneity that happens with groups of people, the creativity that comes out of those people being together, the um, interjection of ideas, and you need to have physical space to do that. So our view is that it is ludicrous to think that companies will not return to offices and they will return to offices. And anybody that says that they're going to not be in offices, I think is naive um, to how a culture is built in a company because you can possibly, uh, you can maintain by video conference uh, a business for a while. You cannot build a culture and over the longer term, you will never maintain a culture of a business by video conference. Uh, in addition, I can tell you that when you ask most people, they don't like actually sitting at home and uh, and doing all the things that they have to do at home and not having an office. So I, I, I guess it's just human. Yeah, we we spend a bit of time. Everyone has analyzing, you know, productivity, interactions, all that. I, I guess a couple of things that do come through is, you know, we, and we were doing a survey with our employees. Uh, the amount of time that people save not commuting seems to be a benefit, of course. I don't think anyone's saying they don't ever want to go into an office, which means there's always got to be a desk there. Nobody wants to do things like, uh, what do you call them, like shared, you know, hot desking, because they're like, what icky things has someone left on that desk before them? Um, I mean, th- 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 so I'm just wondering what, whether the office itself looks different and whether that has some sort of impact on commercial property. Yeah, no, look, no doubt. I, I think, um, f- firstly, you're right. There are, um, again, there's never cut and dry things in anything. And what you're going to see, though, and, and we're doing it today, um, we're installing where there's open plan, 
we're installing glass panels between desks. Right. It doesn't disrupt the open plan, but it makes people feel more comfortable. We're we're disinfecting the offices more often. We're we're rooting the offices where people can only walk one way. We're temperature testing at the lobbies of many of our buildings. We're doing we're four people to an elevator, possibly three. Um, no more than that. So there's many, many things. We, we People don't touch elevators anymore. Doors open automatically. So all of those things are going to happen. And you may, I think what's possibly going to happen, yes, yeah, some people may work from home if they can, and they can get their job done more than they did before. But the spontaneity and culture of a business needs an office. Yeah. I, you mentioned the elevator. That's it. We, we wrote a piece as part of our sort of predictive, you know, what will change. We had a piece about big elevator, you know, the four big European U.S. guys fighting it out. I'm sure there's Asian um, players as well. It was an extraordinarily popular story. I mean, it was the top story for a week on our website. I'm just curious, like, what what happens to the elevator guys? How do you? How, I mean, you just mentioned two or three people. I just know, even in the in the before times, waiting five, seven, eight minutes, thinking, my God, what you know? How is this all going to work? Who are the winners in that? Yeah, first, in your, you should get a new office building in New York. Maybe you should come and see us, and we could take care of you because uh, we don't. You don't have to wait five minutes at our. Building. Well, if our CEO is listening, um, I'll, I'll assume he heard that. <laughs> the um, but here's look what I would say is I think many of these things again are going to pass. We're going to find a vaccine. We're going to get comfortable with this. It's going to go away. Um, it, it, in due course, we're going to have we're going to have differences for the time being. But then some things are going to pass and it will go back to normal. Now, if you go back to 9-11, people said nobody will go to office buildings again other than on the, on the first five floors. Um, that went away, of course. But what didn't go away is that we, we have bomb dogs at many buildings and we, we have metal detectors going into buildings and we have security desks to be able to, to check um, identification people going into buildings. That came from 9-11. Yeah. So there are lasting things that are going to occur. And you know what? They're good. They're going to be good. They're going to prevent the next pandemic. If we ever have a second occurrence, healthcare is going to be better taken care of. They're, they're, um, they're in a better situation to take care of it. They're more prepared. And we as office building owners and every other business owner is more prepared. We know what it is. Unfortunately, the next time one of these occurs, it won't be the same. But if it was the same, we'd be prepared. Right, um, right, right. But those small little things are just nuances, I'd say. Yeah, certainly. Uh, uh, what happens to this sort of shared office, the WeWork model in this in the post-pandemic era? Look, I, I think uh, uh, to a to a small extent, um, offices that are um, for smaller businesses or for short-term space for people to get up and running makes sense. And, and we leave space to many of these groups. And I think there will be some in the future. Um, to, to the extent that uh, there are environments where um, everything was going to change to short-term space, that's not going to happen. And, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, the hot desking. I think hot desking probably is not going to be in existence for a long time, um, maybe uh, forever. And we were never a big fan of that within a, a company, um, partly because we like people to have as many desks as possible. Um, but, but what is going to change is just the amount of personal space within a building. And we've had probably more tenants ask us for more space since this all occurred than less. Now, they have, la they have, they have leases, so they can't really get out of space. But they could ask us to sublet or things, and we really haven't had that. We we have more people asking us about other space that they could build out to accommodate more distancing for their people. All right, let's turn to retail. You're also uh, uh, unlike some other alternative asset managers like Blackstone. Others, you're quite bullish on malls. Um, given the carnage, I mean, we've seen a carnage in retail that's been brought along by digitalization and you know accelerated by the pandemic. What gives you confidence in the mall business or the retail business generally? Yeah, so look, we have a lot of real estate. We have $200 billion of, of uh, real estate. 40% um, of it is invested in retail, so uh, a, a good portion of it. 
Um, but our, it's in our permanent capital vehicle, um, largely not in our funds. Uh, and, and what that allows us to do is have a very long-term view of uh, the strategies that we operate. And um, our, our view has been great retail um, will be better in the future. And, and again, things are going to adapt. And, and one thing that's happening today is we are delivering out of the malls today as they've been opening up on the curbside. And I think that will be something that is staying. And, and remember, um, there is only one retailer in America that delivers to your door. All other retailers uh, do it from stores. And what we have is a physical location. Our malls have a physical location of their inventory. And that inventory will get delivered out of those malls. And increasingly, the online plus store retail is intermixing. So our view has been that we're in the, in the middle of that in a value play to, um, to integrate those together. This doesn't mean malls become fulfillment centers, does it? Or distribution? No, they, what, what they, well, they're not going to become warehouses, but they're showrooms, places to pick up goods. Possibly you went there and bought something, but also they will fulfill out of those centers because... Even just our malls touch 60% of the American population within an hour's drive. So you can come and pick up within an, in an hour uh, any good out of the stores. And remember, all the inventory is sitting there. And that's what's going to happen across the world. In addition to that, and, and the big play for us over the next 25 years is to redevelop these centers into other things. Office buildings, hotels, uh, residential apartments, uh, condominiums. Because remember, these are, if you, if you think of it, there are 100-acre pieces of land in every major city in America. Right. And um, so good retail, we think, will be very uh, good in the long term. There's no doubt, and, 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 and I will just make the differentiation, if you have a poor mall in, a poor, in an area that isn't so high quality, um, it probably will get plowed down over the next uh, 10 years. And, and the good news is this situation we're in today is actually um, advancing that process. So that's right. very good for the retailers and it's good for us. One thing, and you probably saw this morning, Simon Property terminated its merger agreement with Taubman Centers. This was viewed as a huge, you know, the biggest mall merger. Uh, what does that mean? How should we read that? I have no views on the Simon Taubman uh, uh, merger uh, drop of that, uh, uh, so I, I really don't have any comments. I, I, um, I actually, I don't, I don't know anything uh, in the, of the current situation. Sure, I just it, it crossed the tape this morning, so I third, yes. figured I throw it at you. Now, just going, you also have launched this thing called the Retail Revitalization Program. It's a five billion dollar fund that focuses on retail businesses with two hundred fifty million or greater in normalized revenue that have been around for a couple of years. How, how does this investment fund work? And what kind of returns can be expected from this? Or, or will, should we even think of the returns from that as, as something separate from just the general investments in real estate that you all make? Y yes, very separate. And uh, our view is, and this is kind of like with everything we do, um, if you're in a business, look adjunct to, adjunct to it, use the information you have, and try to make money out of doing it. And uh, so our view is that there's a, a, a small, there's very little capital going into retail today. What that means is that there are value opportunities. We have information about many of these retailers. Um, we have relationships with them. We can help them. And to the extent we can make investments um, for value and for significant upside, um, we'll invest into opportunities. And, so it, uh, yeah. So it's not sort of like, oh, we'll lose some money here to keep money no, going here. It's, no. it's generally you, you, that, you have specific investment criteria and return hurdles there that are separate and distinct from those. Yeah, it's just, look, it is, we have a, we have a great informational advantage over most others to be able yeah. to take advantage of, to, to invest into opportunities. And we have the relationship with these. We've been doing a few of it, a few of them before all of this happened. They were uh, all very successful. Uh, and, uh, and we think we can do more out of this, but we're going to be selective. We'll pick the ones that make sense. Um, and to the fact, I'd say there's a, tangential benefit. Uh, if we can help some of those retailers and they get back on their feet quicker, then it's good for other businesses too. But but that's not, the main goal is to make money for our clients. Let me turn to energy, the energy complex. Do you, 
see cheap oil, which we've seen as a result of the pandemic and, of course, the Russia-Saudi-OPEC uh, uh, kerfuffle, do you think cheap oil will throw this uh, drive to renewables to the curbside or, is, or, or like other megatrends, is it accelerated in some way? Where do you, where do you stand on that? Look, I think people are going to be more um, focused on the ESG complex once this all settles down. And what that means is that they're going to push towards renewables, uh, maybe at the same pace as before and possibly at a greater pace. Um, we've had a renewables business for 20 years before it was even called renewables. And uh, as I think the largest owner of renewables outside any government in the world, um, we've been pushing originally hydro, then into wind, and now significantly into solar uh, around the world. And we think there's a big acceleration going to happen um, with renewables as because really the cost curves have been coming down with both technology, but more importantly, manufacturing capacity. And that's allowed um, in particular solar in many markets to become the, um, the, the, the price that sets the, uh, the price in the market. And therefore, I think you're going to seek a continued acceleration of renewables. Uh, so despite $30, you know, oil. Remember, oil doesn't really, isn't burned for electricity. Uh, it's burned for cars, it's burned for jets uh, or airlines uh, and trucks. Uh, it's not really used in this. Now, natural gas is, and natural gas often sets the price in markets. And natural gas has been very low. So I don't think um, there's any change in, in, in renewables based on what happens in oil. But certainly with natural gas, uh, it has, and that's already uh, happened over the past 10 years. Right. So this long-term trend continues. I think that's that's interesting. Um, what, what You mentioned ESG. I mean, we just talked about the E, if you will. Um, but the bigger picture, when you think of the move uh, that everyone was talking about in the business roundtable in the U.S. was endorsing towards uh, a stakeholder capitalism, one where uh, not just shareholders are interests are are front and center, but also employees and others. Where do you think this this event or this crisis has accelerated that trend towards some some sort of different form of capitalism? And how are you seeing it at Brookfield? Look, I, I would I say um, our businesses. Remember what what we operate largely are essential services around the world, which are backbone of the economy. And therefore, we're embedded in the communities. Many of these are regulated assets. They take care of people every day. And the fact is, you have to operate with the highest of standards and take care of everyone in the environment, including the community that you operate in. So we have programs and things in 30 countries in the world and many different parts of the countries. And, uh, and you, if you're going to run that many businesses, you have to take care of all those stakeholders. So we've always tried to integrate that into our businesses. And, uh, but, but I think increasingly going forward, we can always do more and we will do more. And, uh, and I think this, the situation we're in is going to accelerate many things, uh, including that. I mean, one of the things that, that you guys did was a slight shift to your governance structure. Um, maybe you can explain why, you, what, what the purpose of that was. That I guess that would qualify under the, you know, the G part of, of ESG. Um, a lot, and a lot of private equity firms or, or alternative investment managers have done various things, whether they move from units to, to common stock or change voting rights. What's your, what, what was it? Maybe you could explain what Brookfield did and how that investor should interpret that. Yeah, so we've had a partnership, just for everyone's benefit, we've had a partnership that's controlled Brookfield for um, 50 years. 25 years ago, we um, put it into a different structure, and it's existed for 25 years. Over the last while, we streamlined the structure um, and, and made it simpler and more clear to ensure that we could uh, pass uh, through generations the culture that we have in this organization. And that partnership has allowed us to invest for very long periods of time to make value investment bets when we weren't, um, when they weren't, uh, when they were contrarian in nature. And uh, as a result of that, all of our shareholders and our clients have done very well for a long period of time. 
and and what this um, streamlining did was uh, now ensure that um, it's very clear what's there, but it can be passed through generations. And uh, and we hope the culture, it's been 50 years, we hope it can be another 50 years in particular with this structure in place. And the change was just to, it was just a, sh- a shift in the number of people who vote, is that how? It, it, basically the eight people that had the majority of the votes before in the partnership uh, put the uh, put the voting rights into their hands uh, individually, including myself. And uh, and but but over time that transfers to other partners if uh, they're no longer uh, alive. Right. And uh, so it's a very it, it the structure is now set up to live generations. Understood. A um, couple of quick questions, just going back to your sort of portfolio. How will broadly the pandemic change the private equity business? I mean, are you expecting taxes to go up on things like leverage or carried interest? I mean, how are you viewing the return or the the, the, the private equity business in light of all that? I, I think you can take um, situations like this and you can uh, look at them uh, in two different ways. You can look at them in a negative way or a positive way. And uh, we tend to try to look at things in a positive way. I think there will be tremendous opportunity that comes out of this. Um, of course, you had to be prepared for it uh, before because um, those that weren't um, may not be in, in existence afterwards. But if you were, there will be lots of opportunity that comes out of it. It allows you to reset um, things that you do and how you do business. Um, you know, we're sitting back and thinking, what are the things that we can do better? And what are the things that we can do? Can we do different in the future? So I think there will be changes. Um, there's no doubt with the amount of uh, government uh, financing that's been pumped into the system on a global basis that probably the only way to pay it back uh, is increased taxes on, on a global basis. Uh, part of it is hopefully GDP growth, which takes care of a big portion of it, but some of it is going to have to be probably taxes in due time. Although the one thing that people forget about is that interest rates used to be uh, 6% for governments, then there were 4% for governments, then there were 2% for governments, and now they're zero. Mm. And that takes care of a big portion of the weight of the extra issuance of debt on many countries, not all, but many. And yeah. uh, so I think it's like everything, it's going to be some of all. Yeah. Um, may, one last question, then I think maybe we can go into Richard and, and, and look at what uh, our, our participants are asking. But how did your, inf- you also invest in infrastructure, with, you know, long-term horizon. I mean, how did those investments hold up uh, during the crisis or, or, or what has shifted in your view about um, those in- investments as a result of what we've seen with the pandemic? Yeah, so our uh, our infrastructure business is uh, very significant. It's a very global, um, and uh, and it's in all different types. But but the eighty percent are um, uh, regulated or or contracted type businesses, and they stood up extremely well during this environment. Uh, every and just to give you an indication of what these are, is every single investment we have in every country that we own it in was deemed to be a critical service. And, and our people therefore were operating those assets every single day through this pandemic. So um, just gives you the indication of the importance of those assets um, in, in, the, uh, in the portfolio. And, and as a result, the cash flows um, uh, withstood very well uh, in, in all of vir- virtually every case. The only ones on the edge are the GDP sensitive assets like a toll road um, or a railway where they, they right. have volume. They have volume risk and we did have some lower volumes, but there are but starting- things like telecommunications or you know that kind of thing, I suppose. Well, well our telecom tower business was up because yeah. usage was much more significant than we expected um, uh, during this environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Richard, do you have, uh, we've, we've, Bruce and I have been chatting for a half an hour. Why don't we throw it, as it were, to the audience out there yeah. and see what questions they might have? Well, thanks for that. That was fascinating. We have some great questions here, too. I'm just going to combine a couple together. First, Bruce, 
Um, so one question is, how has your definition of risk changed post-COVID? Do you see a prolonged reverse globalization? That's a specific question. But I think I think related, which asset class or classes, I guess, do you think are best positioned to capture gains in the recovering market? Yeah, so look, here, here's what I would say. We don't, um, other than a few businesses we have in private equity, we don't trade over borders. What we do is make investments in critical um, real assets within a country, and then we operate those assets within those countries. So um, we don't necessarily um, get impacted by global trade like many um, uh, significant trading businesses that have operations all around the world and they ship goods. So we don't have a, I don't have a significantly um, good opinion on, on global trade. What I would say is that where we have today situations where we have global trade, and I'll give you an example, uh, in the construction business that we have in many countries in the world, we're having supply chain issues getting goods. And that's disrupted today, largely because of COVID. I, I, look, I, I'm, we're a believer in capitalism, and, and I think you will see some further insourcing to countries of some products. But I, I think you will continue to see specialization uh, around the world in manufacturing capacity. And um, and I don't think globalization is going to totally go backward, but um, but it doesn't necessarily affect us. How about how about your pick of asset classes? But yeah, so sorry, uh, I forgot your second question on, on asset classes. Look, I think the one asset class that proved to be an incredible asset through this um, uh, situation, and that will going forward both be a great asset class is uh, has shown to be durable and 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 does produce very um, strong cash flows as infrastructure and and I'd include renewables in that so infrastructure renewables um, I think will has been increasingly uh, um, getting filled into uh, uh, portfolios of institutions and I think there will be a, a major shift of funding to that and the good news is, Going back to Rob's question of earlier, where do we get the money to pay for all of this? More and more infrastructure will continue to be taken off of balance sheets of governments around the world and funded by private enterprise. So we're going to be building more railways, more toll roads, more water systems, more pipelines. And uh, all of that's going to be uh, capital lifted off government's balance sheets so that they don't have it in their, um, in their budgets. And, uh, and that means that there is money there for the asset class because the institutional investors were into it and now they've seen how it's performed, but the supply is coming as well. And that's been coming for 20 years, but it's been, and it's been increasingly coming. And I think this is, it's going to go exponential as we uh, are coming out of this for the two, those two reasons. Okay, that, yeah, that's that's interesting. Now, to a bit of a different topic, a couple of questions about things we might see from you from Brookfield going forward. Uh, one relates to uh, stakes in public companies. British Land is the example. Will we see more of that? More of that kind of activity from you? Is that a particular opportunity from the situation? I guess is the question. And this is actually on behalf of one of my Reuters colleagues. Is a more specific question. We obviously. Uh, reported on Brookfield potentially being interested in teaming up with Sycamore on JCPenney, I and mean, that's a specific example. Don't know if you can talk about that, but that kind of idea with some of these struggling retailers. Yeah. So, so um, on the public stakes, we um, we took a view that that the cheapest way, in fact, the only way, in March, because you couldn't do anything else, you couldn't do a private transaction. The only, but was to do private was to do buy liquid stakes in securities, and we felt for, um, I think it ended up being twelve companies um, that we invested a pretty sizable amount of money into each that we knew very well, and we felt comfortable with putting capital to work. And uh, some of those will just get sold. Um, some of them in the future may turn into some other opportunity. Um, who knows what the future um, brings? Their investments for the time being. 
And I'd say at the stock, largely at the stock market um, increases that we've seen across the board, we probably aren't, we're not buying very many more of them right now. Uh, in fact, as I said earlier, we're, we're, we've been sold a few, um, but it's not to say that we wouldn't start it again. Um, we try to be adaptable with our investment um, strategy or flexible to be able to execute um, what the best way to uh, get investments. With respect to your other question on retailers in the United States, that was our fund was set up to partner, work with, help um, uh, retailers. And to the extent there's an opportunity, I'm sure our team are looking at it. Okay, suitably, suitably non-committal on that specific yeah. case. Um, can I ask a specific one about um, bailouts? I guess there's a general question of what do you think about bailouts and the impact on that, but this is on you and um, the Canadian uh, small business real estate bailout. Uh, I forget, it's uh, CECRA, Secra, it's probably called, um, giving tenants a break on the rent if landlord, uh, sorry, giving landlords some subsidy on the rent if if they discounted the tenants. Is that is that a sort of good concept for you? If you don't know anything about that particular scheme, maybe we should pass on that. But yeah, look, I would just say the following. Any are the biggest issue that's happening globally, and this is in every single country in the world. We're in we have real estate in 22 of the 30 countries we do business in. In every single country, small businesses are the one that are suffering the most and they're the least able to survive zero cash flows when they're shut down. And to the extent that uh, governments can assist small business stay in business, that's very helpful for, of course, people that own real estate, but more importantly, for the economy and for employment, because when small business goes down, people lose jobs and it takes a long time to get those businesses back up and running. Uh, so our view is that anything, we, we're, we're for encouraging everywhere, the government went to ensure that they put small business back into business. And to the extent we can be helpful doing that, we're trying to be helpful. We had one, we just came in right before we started. I mentioned it then, I'll repeat it now. Uh, you talked about transitions to renewables. You also invest in uh, gas pipelines, for example. You know, How do you contextualize them together? I mean, why are you still investing in fossil fuel pipelines if there's a transition underway, long-term transition underway to renewables, I guess is the question. Yeah, so look, our, um, our view is that uh, uh, renewables in the longer term will be a big portion of the stack of electricity, um, but it's going to take a very long period of time. And in the fullness of time, it may be 20%, 30%, 40% of capacity. Something needs to fill that in and gas will continue to be an important uh, either bridge fuel or permanent fuel that's out there. And it has some emissions, but it's not as bad as many um, that are there. And therefore, uh, natural gas is still an important um, commodity. And some people don't take that view um, of, uh, well, it isn't just say we shouldn't have anything, but we have to have something to run the world. And uh, so our view still is that, nat that natural gas pipelines are, um, are an important uh, critical infrastructure in the economy for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And, uh, and the investments we're making will pay off um, very well during that period of time. Okay, now there's a, a bunch of questions relating sort of loosely around the topic of very low interest rates and very high leverage, potentially within perhaps your own property portfolios, but I guess everybody's investments in general, the question of, um, is leverage at these very low rates a risky thing for the future? Assets therefore mispriced and so on. So I, I guess that's a broad topic, but is leverage a big concern, whether it's in the investments you make, in the markets you're in, in valuations? Yeah, I don't, um, look, other than uh, hotels that have been shut and some retail um, that won't get back up and running, 
Um, most office buildings, people collected their rents and therefore they have mortgages on them. They'll be able to pay their, um, their, pay their rent. I don't, this is not a crisis. Uh, this isn't a real estate, commercial real estate crisis that we're in. Um, there was a few months where people may have had some issues, but it's not um, that situation. So I would say bar other than places where people had too much leverage and, and more importantly, that it wasn't structured properly. Our, our, our um, leverage within our real estate company is mortgage by building, by building, by building, by building. None of them cross collateralized and none of them have any other guarantees on them. So while we are a very responsible borrower with all of our um, banks and institutions, um, everyone stands on its own and is largely investment grade. So we don't have any, we, we don't believe we have any real issues with um, uh, financing within our portfolio. Um, but I don't even think broadly speaking, there's that significant issue out there. And you haven't seen that many quote unquote blowups in the last three months. And it's because of that. Can I just ask one uh, one question uh, that I, you and I talked about, Richard, before, which is one, one thing when you look at the portfolio, Bruce, of Brookfield, um, and compare it to, say, some of the other more, I don't know, a Blackstone or some of the other private equity firms, you don't have like a tech or growth, equ I don't, a growth equity, I don't know what they call it, that kind of area. Tech is sort of what is sort of the handy word for it. Is that, a, is that something you consciously or avoiding? Is it something you actually think you have through some other vehicle or is it something you want to get into? So I, I two points. First one is we've always, probably more than any of the um, equivalent investors, we've been value type investors. So we try to have uh, uh, serious amounts of capital more than most. We try to um, have operating expertise within our businesses. And then we try to move money around the world where um, we can find uh, value for less than replacement cost. And our general view is that uh, if you can buy less than replacement cost, it is valuable um, to the situation. So I, I would say our, that's been our bent. Wh what that's led to is that we've never really been a technology investor. Um, we have a we have we started three years ago a, a technology group in in Palo Alto. Um, we've been investing into um, again going back to our thesis of business. We're investing in real asset technology for real asset strategies and ancillary to the businesses that we operate. So we have a company that does locks for multifamily buildings, and we're doing software for. Um, uh, leasing for tenants and, and goods from ports in Los Angeles uh, with an app and different things. And um, so we're starting into it, but it's it's a small component of our business. Okay, thank back to you, Richard. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And and uh, just switching to the sort of regional country question. Are any? Uh, do you see? Any difference, or who, who, which regions do you think are better positioned? U.S., Europe, China, Asia, Africa. Um, I guess we're talking about for the coming years in the post-virus world. And we've also had a couple of questions. If you if you get to this specifically on uh, your view of Indian real estate, so I don't know if you can work that in as well. So uh, here, here's what I would say: If we, we invest in 30 countries in the world. We do that because from time to time, you can move money to places and you can find value where others are highly valued. Um, so that's why we invest globally. Um, when uh, values are cheap in all markets of the world and you can find good value in the United States or other developed economies like that, you would invest nowhere else with the same return. So um, usually during periods of time like this, more of our money goes to North America than anywhere else because the markets are liquid, the companies are big, the opportunities are large, and returns can be found when otherwise you wouldn't have been able to find them. And so more money of our, our will go there. Despite that, I'm sure we'll invest in many parts of the world. Uh, and uh, you know we're, we're putting money in today into China, we're doing things in Brazil and the rest of Latin America. Uh, we don't invest in Africa, so I don't have a view. Europe, we're continuing to invest. India specifically, 
Um, we've been a big investor into a number of things in the last last few years. Um, it's been highly successful. Uh, the, there is a deep value opportunity in India, and this pandemic is only, uh, I think, accelerates that. Um, is there is there a concern about political instability? And you look at the civil unrest in the United States. Does that change? Should that change investors' views about return assumptions from the United States, or is it still a safe harbor in the same way it was? Look, I uh, everything's a relative story, and uh, and I think we're having issues all around the world. The United States is an amazing place, and it will come back. And therefore, I don't think uh, I would say that we find a, a safer place um, than the United States of America. Um, that's not to say that we aren't investing in other places, but I don't think this has changed it. Canada, come on, that's your home country. Bruce. Yes, but and but the point is, Rob, the, the opportunities, it's a, great, it's a great place, but it's small. And, uh, and we have a big presence in Canada, but it's very small. And, and, um, and we can have an enormous presence in the United States, and we can be very small relative to what's there. Right. Well, Richard, Bruce, I think maybe we should wrap it up here, if that, unless there's some burning question. I, actually, let me throw you just a sort of simple one, which is what, uh, you know, when you look out over the next 18 months, two years, three years, what, what excites you as an investor with, you know, all this half a trillion dollars to play with? And what, what kind of worries you the most? So here's what I'd say. Um, what worries me the most is that uh, we have 2,000 uh, investment people and we have 150,000 operating employees. This is a complex uh, environment to operate in. And uh, every day we have to take care of the people that we have within the organization. We have to run it with empathy, but we have to get back to business. So um, it's very, uh, it's complicated. And uh, it's always complicated in business, but, but now is even more complicated. But we do have to get back to work. On the positive side, the opportunities when there is less capital out there for those that have significant amounts of capital, and we sit on $60, $70 billion of dry powder and cash, and um, the opportunities are significant in this type of environment. It's exciting. I think the funds that we have today um, will be uh, uh, enormously successful vintages for the investors that we have. And, and that's exciting that we can deliver um, good returns for all those clients to be able to pay their pensioners or retirees and everyone that's out there. So I, I think that's the, um, the great opportunity of the environment that we're in. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Paula Gil Rodriguez. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. Thanks for tuning in. Arrivederci.